ladies and gentlemen. Coming to you live on Seattle's original diehard sports station, Seattle Sports Radio 950, KJR. Now back to Puckett and the Gas Man. Hi, everybody. Terry Blunt here. Jason Puckett's on vacation for July 4th week. Remember, next week starts his fantastic new show that we're all looking forward to with Puckett and Cliff Averill. So excited to have Cliff Averill join us here at the station. He's going to do a fantastic job, a really great guy. It'll be cool to hear his insights about what's happening with the Seahawks going forward. And speaking of the Seahawks and Mariners and an expert on almost any subject you want to talk about is my partner Saturdays on Blunt Sports Talk, Curtis Crabtree, joining us now on the Beacon Plumbing Hotline. What's up, Curtis? Terry, how's it going? I'm doing okay. I just want to kind of get your thoughts first on... On Cam Chancellor, of course, uh, you were the one who actually showed me this first yesterday when we were at the Mariners game, showed me his tweet. Um, where does he rank for you and guys that you've covered uh, as a person and as a player? Way up there. Uh, I mean, off the top of my head, I don't know how I could definitively say one way or another, but Cam's in the top group of guys that I covered, both from a player standpoint and from a guy uh, in the locker room standpoint. He was... Uh, you know, as as much as Earl was the flashy guy and Richard Sherman was the loud guy, Cam was the guy that kind of brought everything together on the back end of that defense. And certainly his uh, ability to hit as hard as he did and make as many um, impact plays as he did was a big reason why Seattle's defense was as feared as it was over that several-year stretch where they were so good, five, that five-, six-year run where they were at the top of the league just about every season out there. And so he is certainly up there. Certainly I don't think uh, this this caught us by surprise by any stretch. I think we all felt it was going this way um, one way or another due, due to the various stuff that we've kind of seen and heard over the, the uh, ensuing months since he first got injured last November. But to, to have it finally come down this way uh, – you know, we were all expecting it. It just uh, was time to happen. You know, Curtis, he's such a quiet man. And to have him put that tweet out that was so deeply personal and so heartfelt, that, that got to me. I mean, you know, there was a lot of things said in there that you could tell this this just breaks his heart to mm-hmm. have to do this. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen him uh, more emotional. In, I mean, obviously, we couldn't see him, but to write something that much from the heart uh, really said a lot about how hard this has been for him, I think. Yeah, I think so. As much as you can, you know, kind of spill your emotions into a note on your iPhone or that sort of thing, you know, it's, it's kind of tough to get the message across in such a way. But it seems like the words that he cho- chose um, to express himself showed pretty clearly how he kind of went through this whole process and how all things being equal, he wants to keep playing. I think if you ask Cliff Averill and Ricardo Lockett, the same thing about their injuries, both of them wanted to keep playing as well. Um, that decision wasn't necessarily in their hands. And, you know, throughout this whole process, you know, I'd heard that, you know, cams wasn't quite as definitive that there was a possibility something could turn there for him, but they needed to wait and see. And obviously, um, with Cam saying that they saw no real signs of uh, healing at this point in time from from his injury, that it is what it is. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think he got as much across as you could in that sort of a message. Let's talk a little bit about the business side of this. They're going to owe him over $11 million over the next two years. He's not officially retired, of course. He can't do that because of the money involved. He'll be put on the physically unable to perform list. But for you, what does this mean for them moving forward, and do you think it impacts their decision at all in what they do with Earl Thomas? 
Uh, that's tough to say because I don't think – I mean, the Seahawks have known what the situation is. I don't think they found out a dang thing new yesterday. You know, right. so they've had this entire off season to prepare for where they were going to be at. I think they were all anticipating that this was going to be the route this would end up heading. So I don't know if it affects that decision really at all. Um, but certainly the fact that um, there's money tied to it there that Cam's going to be owed, you know, they could certainly come to some sort of a, an agreement to pay out the money anyway and let him retire or something like that. That's certainly something you could have in the works and just, you know, have it massage that way instead of having to do the technical aspects of PUP lists and holding around for a year and all those sorts of things. You can kind of w- find a way to make it work. But um, certainly that, that that's a cost that they're going to have to carry for the time being. I, I don't know exactly what the dollar amount is. I know he was guaranteed $12 million in case of injury uh, when he signed his deal last August. Exactly how that gets paid out, I'm not exactly sure because I haven't seen the contract. But, um, yeah, it's certainly it's something that's going to be a part of the conversation. And, look, there's a reason they went and re-signed Bradley McDougal to a multi-year deal. You know, th- again, like yeah. I said, this was not something that was catching them by surprise. No, that's that's definite. It's not going to catch him by surprise. I, I wonder going forward to talk about these guys that are going to have to step in now. Uh, you talked about McDougal, who had a really good season last year, but guys like Delano Hill and and uh, Tedrick Thompson and these guys that are going to step in. You know, I think people forget that when Cam Chancellor and Richard Sherman came to the Seahawks, you know, these guys were later draft picks. Uh, Sherman was, you know, a fifth round pick. Chancellor was a fifth round pick. The only one that was a giant name coming out was Earl Thomas, who was a, you know, a top 10 pick, first round pick out of Texas. But they weren't that well known when they came out. My question is can these guys that they have been lining up knowing this day was inevitable be those kind of players? And I realize a guy that like Chancellor, an unbelievable tackler and hitter doesn't come along every day Richard Sherman's probably going to go to the Hall of Fame as well but can they be guys that they can win with consistently and be you know better than average defensive backs going forward do you see that in this young group that they're going to have to play now I I think it's too early to say because we haven't seen any of them play any significant time in NFL games to this point um, I mean, I, I know that there's, you know, optimism that Delano Hill can be something for him. Tedrick Thompson, we really don't know much about at all. He was inactive for a good chunk of last season outside of playing a little bit special teams role later on in the year when guys started to get hurt. Um, you know, certainly McDougald is a little is definitely a proven piece that can swing to either one of the spots there, and you can feel relatively competent with the cornerback spot. I think they can feel more comfortable with because you saw that that threesome play out a good chunk of last season where you had Shaquille Griffin, Byron Maxwell, and Justin Coleman holding down reasonably well. Um, that, that safety position is going to be a little bit more up in the air uh, because we haven't seen Delano Hill. We haven't seen Tedrick Thompson. They did go out and sign Maurice Alexander, who's played some time with the Rams over the years, to, to add some veteran depth to that group as well. So um, I, I think that's gonna, that, that and defensive end are going to be two positions to certainly watch once we get training camp started. Let's speculate, and I don't know this is going to happen. None of us know what's going to happen with Earl, but let's say Earl moves on. They make a deal with some team to trade him. Who starts at free safety and who starts at strong safety uh, on opening day for the Seahawks if that if that were to happen, in your opinion? My, my hunch would be Bradley McDougald would be the free safety with Delano Hill at strong safety, and that would be the two some they'd run out there. 
And I know they uh, think they think Hill's a big tackler. You know, obviously not that hitter that Cam is, but they think he's a big time tackler. Can play kind of that that safety in the box kind of role, right? I, I, he is definitely a strong safety. Yes, yeah. no question. I, I don't think he's quite the same mold as Cam Chancellor because few are. But he can. That's certainly the uh, the role that he would slot into and the kind of uh, skill set that they saw in him when he was at Michigan. Definitely. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that going forward. Obviously, Earl Thomas still is the unknown here. The What's going to happen? Is he staying? Will they give him a new deal? Will he be disgruntled? Will he go elsewhere? No, no one knows, and I've talked to you about this before. It's just impossible to say at this point. So, you know, we just got to look going forward. But, you know, uh, Cam, moving on, it's it's a difficult thing for them because he's just such a well-liked guy what is your what's your most memorable you know we're asking people on twitter and on the text line to what's their most memorable moment their favorite moment of cam what what is the one player one incident that you remember the most of his career well there were four or five that immediately came to mind but the the, the one that's the top of the list was probably this shot on vernon davis that i think comes to everybody's forefront when you think of, yeah. of cam chancellor uh, particularly when you go to the heat of that rivalry and how physical those games were, that hit was – it embodied everything that that rivalry was at the time. But you have um, you have that play. You have him jumping over the line of scrimmage to block a field goal against Carolina. You have him having a pick six against Carolina. You have uh, him blowing up Eric Winston when he was a pulling, pulling offensive lineman playing for Arizona at one point in time, punching the ball free from Calvin Johnson right. from the goal line against Detroit. Um, you know, there's a there's a big number of plays you can pull back to uh, the hit on Demarius Thomas in the Super Bowl, and you know, as I was discussing with a guy on Twitter last night um, who works for ESPN, uh, there was a play later on in that Super Bowl where he came off his coverage guy initially to hit Wells Welker on a crosser and it dislodged the ball from him in the third quarter, I think it was. Right, right. It was maybe the most impressive play that I've seen him make just for a guy his size to turn and get, you know, change directions that quickly and break up a pass like that on the biggest stage. So there's, there's a handful of plays from Cam Chancellor's career that are indelible, and those are the ones that come to mind for me. Yeah, and you and I both know what a great guy he is off the field. There's a, I got one uh, tweet here from Kim Grinnells of Dogman.com that I really like where he said, my favorite was watching him serve Thanksgiving dinners to those who needed help. Uh, he was as good off the field as on it, maybe better. And I, I think that's what we remember about him uh, without a doubt. Do you foresee them I and mean, I have no idea if he wants to go into coaching what he wants to do in the future do you foresee him possibly them f- trying to find a role for him here where he can continue to be part of the organization potentially um I mean I don't know how it would play I, I don't know what his aspirations are but certainly the fact he's got a wealth of football knowledge that he could pull from and if that's something he he would want to do I'm sure uh, he could fit in on a staff like the Seahawks at some point in time. Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that would be overnight. Immediately he jumps straight into the staff or anything like that. But at some point down the road, could it be a possibility? Yeah, I think it's, it, it could be. Now, again, you're asking me to get in, in Cam's head and what he wants to do. I've got no idea on that front. So we're all talking hypotheticals. Exactly. By the way, you're right in our little poll here on Twitter, my little poll here on Twitter, running away with it is the hit on Vernon Davis. 64% of the voters, over 300 votes so far, said that was their favorite Cam moment. Uh, way more than uh, the Super Bowl hit on Thomas, which is only 22%. So that's the one people seem 
to remember the most. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, the Amazing Mariners, as I call them. You and I were both out there yesterday. Another fantastic pitching performance. Paxton was amazing. You know what I remember the most about that? He obviously had eight shutout innings, struck out 11, only gave up two hits. But his last pitch of the eighth inning, his 110th pitch of that game, was clocked at 99 miles an hour. I mean, <laughs> that's just unbelievable. I mean, what is it about him that you think has brought him to another level? Uh, mentality, more so than anything else. I think he was so worried early in his career about being perfect and making sure the pitches were all on the corners and everything like that. And it took you know a myriad of people telling him, dude, you throw 100 miles an hour. You don't need to paint the corners. Just throw it. You know, you've got the stuff. Like, and, and, you know, finally that kind of sunk in, and he had some success with it, and it finally started to come around, and he started to believe, understand how good his stuff is. And so, you know, it's a, it's a number of things, but fi- finding that mentality and trusting what you have in your arsenal and all of that is a big part of him being uh, the pitcher that he's been able to become here. I like how Scott Service said after the game about that. He said, you know what? He just went out there and emptied the tank. He he just let it fly, let it rip. He said, okay, boys, here's old number one. Hit it if you can. Here it comes. And he, and they couldn't. And uh, But he also had an amazing, what he calls a cutter. I know it's a big controversy, whereas whether it's a cutter or a slider, the point is no one can hit it when he's when he has the kind of control he had yesterday. That pitch has been a big factor for him going forward, don't you think? Oh, certainly. I mean, it's it's a pitch that he, he had working really well all, all throughout last season. And I think the reason he calls it a cutter more so than anything is a thought process of how he wants to hit it, uh, how he wants to throw it. And I think that's it's just so, sort of a mental sort of check for him. It's slider action, and that's why Scott Service has said repeatedly, "Oh, <laughs> uh, it's a slider." It was a slider. We didn't have cutters day. in my day. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's like, you know, Mariano Rivera threw a cutter. This isn't a cutter, but you know, I think that's why Paxton refers to it as such because of the way he throws it. I think it's just a way he wants to think about th- how, how the pitch is thrown to where it allows him to execute it the right way. So, call it whatever you want. It's effective. It goes back to the. Uh, the line from you know one of the major league movies where they're t- debating it is who gives a bleep? It's gone. No, that's like, it doesn't matter what right. you call it. it that's works. like Zanino said. He says, "Man, I don't care what he calls it. It's just when I call it, I know that thing is going to get some people out. <laughs> call it whatever he exactly. wants to call it." So let's talk about the other amazing pitcher uh, right now, and that is Edwin Diaz. I mean, the stats, Curtis, are unbelievable. I read this earlier on the show. He is now one of only two pitchers in Major League history to have at least 30 saves and 70 strikeouts before the All-Star break. The only other pitcher to ever do that was Eric Gagne when he was with the Dodgers. I mean, his stats are incredible. He's 20, they're 22-0 and when he comes into the game with a one-run lead. They are 40-0 and this season when he enters the game with the lead. That's, these stats are staggering. Absolutely staggering. Could anyone have? I mean, he was obviously he was pretty good last year, but unbelievable. What is it about him this season that has made him all but untouchable? Well, I think he's figured out how to pitch when he doesn't have one of his pitches. Um, you know, there's there was times last year where he couldn't command the fastball, and therefore, you know, his opponents could sit on his slider and wait for one to be in the zone uh, and do something with it. 
And I think he's found a way to manage it to where when he doesn't have a great feel for the fastball or for the slider, he's found a way to work around it. And you look at his splits from last year, he was doing every bit of this, for the most part, last year on the road. It was the games at yeah, home, at home we where, struggled. where he was a little bit str- more, he had more struggles for sure. And so now he's just been able to harness it home and away, figure out how to handle both of those pitches when, when one might not quite be working the way he wants. And then obviously when they both are working the way that he wants, he's almost impossible to touch. So um, th- that's kind of where he's gotten to where he is right now. Is there any concern for you, and I know Scott talked about this a little bit a couple of days ago, that he's been used so much that when we get into late August and into the grind in September, especially if they're still in the hunt with the Astros, that he might uh, get tired. Uh, and do you think they're they're preparing for that? I, I'm sure they would like to give him a couple more days off from time to time, and that's why you know you have an Alex Colome on the roster and a, and a Juan Nicasio to give them those sort of spells when he might need it. Um, if that if that comes along, and certainly you know. <laughs> You get Robinson Cano back in mid-August. Maybe you're not playing so many one-run games at that <laughs> yeah. point in time. You find a way to not have to be in so many safe situations, which could, which could certainly benefit on that front too. Um, but sir, uh, I'm sure it's a concern. He's also a really young arm, and you would expect that if any point of his career he'd be able to hold up through it. It might be right now. So I know you probably I know what you're probably going to answer to this because you just want me to see me cut a symbol in the side of my head. But uh, do you think realistically the Mariners at this point have a shot to catch the Astros to win the division title? I think they do, um, and that's not saying that they they will or anything like that or that I expect it. But I think they do have a chance. They are basically halfway into the season right now and are what a half game back of the Astros. Yeah. Uh, the Astros certainly have a more uh, accomplished starting pitching rotation right now, but the Astros have not had the offensive success, even despite their incredible run differential. It's not been as smooth as uh, they would have liked it to be, and they've had struggles in the bullpen throughout uh, the season, too. Um, so, I mean, they did just lose, what, three or four to Tampa? Is that yeah, right over the they weekend? Did. So. They have shown that they can falter from time to time, and so the door is still ajar for the Mariners to do something with it. And the fact that they were able to come back from their first kind of rough stretch of the season on that road trip to Boston and New York and come back and win the next seven games that they played, even if it is against Baltimore and Kansas City, that's a pretty good sign of what this team's capable of doing and how quick they're able to flush a little bit of a poor rut and continue to push forward. So uh, will they have a chance to? Yeah, I think they do have a chance. It's still, But it's a long way to go before uh, we'll know for sure what that uh, picture is going to look like uh, heading into September. going to be fun to see. They still have 13 games with the Astros, and, and those are just going to be, wow, I just can't wait. So, Curtis, thanks for joining us. Great stuff as always. We'll talk to you later in the week, and I'll see you on Saturday. Thanks, buddy. All right. See you, Terry. That's Curtis Crabtree. Listen, we've got some great stuff coming up. Continue to send us your text on whether you think LeBron James will win a championship with the Lakers. Why or why not? Send it to the Heritage Distilling text line at 49451. We've got some great stuff coming up. We've got PJ Carlissimo in the next hour with lunch with listeners. And when we come back, though, we're going to have an update on the World Cup and the Sounders. Stick with us on Sports Radio 950 KJR.